The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, this week we lost one of America's great comic actors. Jerry Stiller died on Monday at the age of 92. Now, some of you remember him from his early career in the 60s, when he and his wife Ann Mira were a popular comedy duo, and I did not exist. But most of us think of him in his iconic role on the sitcom Seinfeld as Frank Costanza, the irascible father of George Costanza. Now, irascible is putting it mildly. The genius of the character Jerry Stiller created is that he could be annoyed by anything, real or imagined. And when he got annoyed, which was all the time, he always took it to 11. Of course, there was never anything really at stake. Seinfeld was famously a show about nothing. See, it's very uncomfortable to have somebody annoyed with you, especially if you've given them good reason, but to watch somebody very funny get very angry at somebody else for something very unimportant was a surefire recipe for laughs. Well, the Apostle Paul was no Frank Costanza. Granted, he does go on a long rant toward the end of 2 Corinthians. He does pop off at his opponents in Galatians, but for the most part in his writings, Paul kept his anger in check, and scholars agree that he probably wasn't the class clown. But we do read in our Acts passage that upon seeing all of the idols in Athens, Paul was greatly distressed. The Greek word Luke uses here to describe Paul, paraxunomai, only shows up one other time in the New Testament. It's in the 13th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the famous love chapter that you hear at weddings all the time, even though that's not remotely what Paul had in mind when he wrote it. Paul says there that among several other things, love is not, love is not irritable. But here in Athens, Paul was definitely irritated. As I thought about this passage while preparing the sermon, I was struck by just how far short of the Apostle Paul I fall. I think the people I live with will tell you that I am all too easily irritated. It's kind of a running joke when it comes to the fact that nobody else in the house evidently knows how to load a dishwasher properly. So I do my Frank Costanza bit there, and we all have a good laugh, but, but too many other things make me too irritated too easily. Now, Paul certainly had good reason to be annoyed, and yes, it does peek through sometimes in his letters, especially to the Corinthians but not just by wayward church plants. 
He tells us on numerous occasions, as does Luke, about all the hardships he had to endure for the sake of the gospel. If Paul can be beaten to within an inch of his life and turn that to a cause for joy, why is it that I let my whole night get ruined by a bad internet connection? I'm sure part of the reason is that Paul was more advanced spiritually than I am, and so being more mature, he was better able to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune than I am. But, but I also think it was because Paul had formed his understanding of the world in such a way that his heart broke for the things that break God's heart. Now, if you pay even the slightest attention to any part of Scripture, you can't help but notice that one of the things that breaks God's heart is treating anybody or anything other than God like you ought to treat God. The idolatry in Athens was in many ways the same kind of idolatry that the ancient Israelites would have encountered. God told that people, living in a world full of idolatry, in the very first of the Ten Commandments, that you shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrew alpanai translates literally, up in my face. The second commandment begins, you shall not make for yourselves a graven image, and goes on to specify exactly what God means by that. The prophets liken the practice of idolatry to adultery, proclaiming the infidelity of God's people in sometimes graphic and humiliating ways. Now you'll notice that here Paul is not concerned chiefly with his own dignity, although yes, that does peek through in some other places, especially his encounters with legal authorities elsewhere in Acts. No, Paul is jealous for God's glory. A city full of idols is a city full of people worshiping someone other than the one true God. That is, unless they're lucky enough to be worshiping at one particular altar. Look, Paul says to the people of Athens, I see that you're really religious. You're so religious and so thorough that you make sure you cover all your bases by setting up this special altar so that in case among all those temples you're missing one of the gods, you can make sure you worship him. Well, guess what, he says, I know this God. Let me tell you about him. He has a name. He has a history with the people as well as with the entirety of the world he made. He's told us how he is to be worshipped. He's putting up with all kinds of nonsense right now, but someday his appointed servant will judge justly. And he's validated all of what I've just told you by raising that very person from the dead. Now, this line did not go over well in Athens. Luke tells us that everyone there was interested in all the latest ideas. You can imagine they all probably had tote bags from the local public TV station. They would have gone to lectures while other people were watching sports. Their idea of a good time was to get together with a bunch of other people to talk in serious tones about a book none of them understood and very few of them had even read in the first place. If they had them at the time, they would have all been driving Priuses. And yet, even they were not so intellectually generous as to consider the possibility that a dead person had come back to life. Why not? Well, because they knew full well what everybody knows. Dead people stay dead. Both Jews and Gentiles at the time were quite sure that death was a one-way street. Now, many Jews did hope for a future resurrection at the end of days, but that was the sort of thing you wouldn't be able to miss when it happened. 
Now, the idea that God would raise one person from the dead as a foretaste of that future resurrection, and, not incidentally, as a validation of everything that person said and did, now, that wasn't part of the intellectual landscape. I think it's against this backdrop that we see so clearly what Paul did and didn't do when he preached to the Athenians. He certainly was prepared, as Peter says, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Well, he did have his share of vigorous debates when he was opposed here in his speech on Mars Hill. Paul very much spoke with gentleness and respect. Paul bent over backwards to speak graciously to his audience, to play the role of invited guest. He established multiple points of respectful content contact with their culture, including quotes from well-known Greek poets. You can't quote somebody else's poetry unless you know both their language and their culture well enough to understand poetry. And yet, as much as Paul's words were gracious and respectful, they were also clear and definite. You don't know this God? I do. Let me tell you about him. Paul didn't praise them for their interfaith sensitivity. He did not applaud the way they honored multiple expressions of human religious feeling. He did not affirm that there are multiple paths up the mountain and none is better than any other. No. He said that there is, in fact, only one God. And you guys maybe get half a point out of ten for saving a corner of your religious devotion to honor him just in case, but that is definitely not going to cut it. This one true God, Paul says, has been working through the fabric of our world, of your world, to draw you to Himself, not to some vague idea of Him, not to whatever expression of religiosity suits you best, not, God forbid, to your best self now. This God is more real, more real than anything you can see or taste or smell. He deserves your full devotion. The first thing you need to know about that is that he raised Jesus from the dead. My friends, I have a long way to go in being conformed to Christ's image. There is much sinful irritability in me that needs to be put to death. But I think our readings today tell me that the solution to my short fuse is not to drink chamomile tea all day. It's to love God. After all, Jesus said, that if we love Him, we'll do what He told us to do. And if we find that we're not doing what He told us to do, that tells us that our love for Him is deficient. The answer to that problem is to turn our affections to Him as He has revealed Himself, not as we like to think Him to be. We don't gather here virtually or in person to celebrate some vague conception of divinity we gather to worship the one true God who has revealed Himself eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Holy One of Israel. To Him alone be all honor, glory, and power, now and forever. Amen. To conclude, I ask that you pray with me the prayer of self-dedication that begins on page 832 of the Book of Common Prayer. 
This is the third Sunday of the month, and ordinarily we use this as our post-communion prayer when we have our monthly healing services. We will have them again. And I know you join me in praying that the day comes quickly. But for now, please join me in praying this prayer that Paul and Peter would not have known but would certainly have resonated with. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray you, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.